so Stacey, overcoming objections, any thoughts on that? <laughs> oh, yes, lots of them. And that is it's time to retire that old worn out concept. It is the reason why people do not do well in sales, because that's the first thing they're taught. You have to have a script to overcome the objections. They're going to give you objections. Psychologists have proven to us over and over again, the mind does not like to hear the word no. We will avoid it at all costs. There's a few people who consider themselves adventurous and up for the challenge, but most folks do not want to hear somebody tell them no. It does not empower them. It does not encourage them. It does not inspire them. And so if that's all they have to go on is, this is what you say when they say no, they won't think to themselves, I don't want to do that. They'll just think, I'm uncomfortable doing that. It's And if they're uncomfortable, they won't practice it. If they don't practice it, they won't master it. If they don't master it, they don't make sales. But there is another way. I mean, are, are you mad or both? I mean, how, how can you possibly do away with objections? I mean, next thing you're going to be suggesting that we shouldn't be closing. <laughs> yeah, how about that? How mm. about I introduce something called the alignment marketing formula that allows most people who are not comfortable always be closing to be able to recognize that they have always known how to make friends. Most people have friends and we got there not by pushing those people into our friendship, but by developing a relationship, by showing true care and concern, by remembering that we as salespeople are not product pushers. We are problem solvers. If we don't identify the problem to be solved, then all that's left to us is to push the product in someone's face. And in this day and age, more and more people, nobody's ever liked it, but more and more people are saying, no, there's too many other ways I can purchase products. I do not need the salesperson bugging me. This is really interesting. Stacy Hall, welcome. Thank you. Stacey Hall, is, you. it's a pleasure. Stacy Hall is author of Selling from Your Comfort Zone. And you'll notice from today, the tenor of today's conversation, that we're going to be taking a pop at a few sacred cows. And we're going to be exploring why what you are telling your salespeople to do at the moment is hurting your sales. The research that came out recently from uh, Matt Dixon and uh, his team in conjunction with Gong and Salesforce, two and a half million calls. The pandemic was a goldmine for data on this. And the data that they've uh, generated, which they published in a book called The Jolt Effect, actually indicates that of the 60% of opportunities that end up in the closed, lost, no decision, more than half of those end up in closed, lost, no decision because the salesperson has done what their idiot boss or their idiot sales trainer has taught them to do, which is to try and handle the objection or if they don't do that, ratchet up the pain or ratchet up the better future and paint all those features and benefits all over again. None of which is what a human being, i.e. the pink stuff, the other end of the desk or phone, 
actually cares about. So, Stacey, tell us, how did you come to the um, the amazing realization that buyers are human beings? <laughs> I watched my father as from a young child. My, my dad wanted to have a job in geology. That's what he got his degree in. He couldn't find one. He loved people. Everybody said, you should go into sales. So he went into sales. And he would wake up every day excited to go talk to people. And then he'd have sales managers constantly telling him he was doing things wrong. He was letting them take advantage of him. And it's funny what you absorb as a child. I saw this. And what was interesting to me later on is that it didn't put me off of sales. I just felt sorry for my dad because I really felt that his way would have been more successful. But I'm listening to the tapes, right? He takes me to school. I'm listening to the tapes. I come home. My mom had a full-time job. So he was the one who got us after school and was cooking dinner before she got home and the tapes would be rolling. And I'm listening to what they're saying. And <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, it never, a child of it never felt right. Yeah. So <laughs> fast forward many years, here I am selling my own coaching services. And I'm doing personal growth work for myself to gain confidence and all of that. And I start learning about the psychology of the mind, the neurology of the mind and the way the mind works, that what we focus on is what we get. And I kept hearing this and kept hearing this. And I kept getting focus on the objections, focus on why. And so these two things were like two trains hitting for me. And the blue, I just got a brain boom and I went, why don't I teach people how to focus on getting the yes instead of the no? What would that look like? And the rest is history for me. And the impact in terms of the, the real life impact in terms of sales, because that's what people are ultimately paying people like you and I for. It's the result and, and that result being sustainable. So what sort of effect has it had on your clients? Well, I can tell you that a lot of my clients are actually in the network marketing industry, not all, but a lot of them have no business background in the first place. Come in, represent, leave a job, represent a company, and that company doesn't teach them sales skills, it teaches them marketing advertising skills. And then they wonder why People aren't just falling all over them to buy these products they're promoting. So when I teach them how to get in alignment with their own wisdom, they put the product aside. And this is true whether you're selling Xerox copiers, whoops, probably shouldn't have done that, but I'm saying copiers or skincare products. It doesn't matter. The same philosophy holds true because people are people are people. First, you must know why you're selling that product. And Marcus, I'm sure you know the statistics, 55% of people, this is a very recent study, 55% of salespeople say they're selling the wrong product. Say they're selling the wrong product in these studies. And which, why are where, they still selling those, it? Where was that study? Because um, I think I'm, it's a HubSpot study. It's definitely in my book, Selling From okay. Your Comfort Zone. I give all the, the resources for it. Right. But that just like dropped me in my tracks because- if you know you're selling the wrong thing, you miss. Why are you still selling you? it? How dare you miss sell it? Yeah, so, selling should be the most noble thing we do in our business. How dare you damage the customer in that way? Damage the company in that way? 
tell me this, why is it? Because that cannot be so persistent and so widespread without management and leadership and investors being utterly complicit in creating those conditions. So explain to me the domino effect of bad thinking at the top. Well, you've hit the nail on the head for me. That's where it starts. Companies that hire anybody who wants a job for sales because they do expect that they're going to have to train them anyway, spend a ton of money on sales training, tons and tons of money on sales training. The sales training always teaches, we'll say almost always, I'll give credit to the few sales trainers I know out there who are not doing this, but the vast majority, the ones that are considered the success stories, even after all these years of so much turnover in the sales departments, teach the script. All you have to do is learn the script, right? That's what they say. All you have to do is learn the script. We've done everything else for you. You just go out, you use the script, and you learn how to overcome those objections and you'll be successful. That's where they're complicit. Instead of working with the individual sales professional to identify what they're excited about regarding the product, not telling them what they should be excited about, but finding out if there's any real connection to this product. And if there's not, if you can't find a way to personalize the story, you have no business selling that particular item. Go find something that you can personalize, that you can be passionate about, that you can show empathy to someone else about. So that's the distinction. Sales is, as you said, Marcus, I I could leap through this screen and hug you. It is supposed to be the most noble profession because we're supposed to be problem solvers, not product pushers. I think we've we've got to get back to, or we've got to remember um, how the whole process of selling comes about. And we've got to stop trying to fight the evolutionary hardwiring that has been created inside human beings' heads and guts to protect them from other human beings who historically have been the greatest threat to our safety. Equally, they've also been the greatest solace. So our natural instinct under pressure which everybody ignores, and I've ignored it for many years as well. I've had it in the back of my mind, but it never really came to my attention because you you pay attention to what you pay attention to, and it's freeze, flight, or fight. But there's the fourth response, which is flocking. It's looking for the support of others. When you feel in danger or threatened or like you're failing and you need a bit of a hug, you go to other people. And the instinctive reaction of a buyer when a seller handles that objection where they feel felt found or yet another negative reverse or something like that is you're not answering my question. You're not allaying my concern. So I'm just going to ignore you. I'm going to be really polite and I'm going to let your career die on the rocks because you deserve it. Yes. So we know studies show over and over again People will do more for acknowledgement than they even will for money. So if we take that and we recognize that our role in service to a client or a prospect 
is to acknowledge their concerns, to acknowledge their world, to acknowledge their situation, then it automatically tells us, throw the script out because there's no way you can get into their head. And you start with questions. You find out what are they dealing with? What's the company going through right now? And how does it affect their job? How can we be of the greatest support to them? How do they want us to stay in communication with them? Would they ever have a need for this product? And if so, under what circumstances? Questions show acknowledgement, respect, appreciation. That's what a client or a prospect wants to hear from us. Not a product pitch that they could read in a brochure. I agree with you. And there's quite a build on this one. So first of all, I think um, the one thing that salespeople do get taught is asking questions. But by and large, forgive me, but it's pretty shit. What they do is it tends to be orientated around BANT. It tends to be orientated around product. And it's not in any way instructive or provocative to the customer or the prospect. And what they're looking for from us is insight. It's uh, helping them to better understand their problem, understand how they might move forward in their thinking towards solving it, because what they really care about is an outcome. And they pay us all for results. And all any of us ever sell is change. And no one likes bad change and uncertain change, but they love good change and they love positive certain change. So it's not like, I mean, you've been told a lot of lies by the gurus out there who've been peddling stuff that was out of date when Queen Victoria was a girl. (laughs) Okay, none of this stuff, uh, nothing that uh, Stacey and I are teaching or talking to you about uh, is new either. The reality is human beings have long for 250,000 years distrusted other human beings for good cause. They've also trusted other human beings for good cause. And if you don't tap into that, you're an idiot. I'm 100% with you. And going back to what you just said about the questions, I agree. Questions that lead where you're designed to lead them to talk about your product? No. Questions that allow us to be able to understand the person, understand their personality, understand the the environment they're in. Those are the kinds of questions because they'll tell you if you show a genuine interest without it looking like you're ready for the next question, you're responding to them. They'll start to talk with you. And this flocking idea is exactly it. We really want to connect. There's a desire in most people to really connect at a soul level, at an empathetic level. So the first thing I wanted to say is I can agree with you. It's not all questions. It's questions that truly, especially at the beginning, help you to understand who the person is across from you. And if you show it genuinely, they'll start asking you questions. That's how you know you've done it, when they start asking questions about you. Because that's them wanting to get to know the person that's in front of them. That's how you know you've got a relationship being built. So that, it's not one sided. And that would be a rapport, an indicator of rapport in your yes. right. Okay, Absolutely. Lovely. It's the first indicator. When they start showing an interest, a personal interest in you, just like any friendship, you start asking questions. You're at a party. 
you meet somebody for the first time. Maybe you start talking about who do you know at the party, okay? It's a little chit-chat. And then it's like, oh, you know them through, you go skiing. Oh, okay, well, I'm a skier too. What? Where do you, you get deeper and deeper into that conversation. As you call it rapport, I call it relationship, same thing. Now there's a reason for two people to stay in communication, even if they're not ready to buy there's been a friendship starting to build. We wouldn't push a friendship. So let's not push that. Let's make agreement when we're going to talk again. What are we going to touch base about? When does it feel right? But like I said, also understanding the perimeter under what circumstances would they be ready to purchase? Because you're obviously there, you know, we're not trying to hide ourselves. We're there to represent something. So before you finish that conversation, you could ask that question. Before I leave, before we end the conversation, just curious, under what circumstances would you be interested in purchasing this product? So I know you're thinking about it. They'll tell you. They'll, they'll be honest. They'll say it would have to be this or that. And, and you could say, do you see that happening anytime soon? See where that leads you. Because there's no point pushing a product when there's no interest. Stacey, I think one of the reasons why so many salespeople uh, would have pushed back and said, oh, well, we can't do, uh, we can't push back like that. We can't ask those kind of questions is because it feels salesy. But if you listen to how she asked those questions, just understand it was utterly unthreatening it was just soft it was gentle it felt perfectly natural as part of that conversation and it's perfectly feasible and reasonable to have those conversations and you need to understand that it's not just about the questioning because again this is where as trainers i've seen most people obsess with questioning and they teach it so badly it's clunky it's it's like giving someone um, a finely crafted samurai sword and then cladding it in clay and then using it as a club. It's utterly heartrending to watch. But then answers. I mean, you are never, I mean, tell me in all of your working life as a salesperson, have you ever been asked an original objection? <laughs> have I ever been given an original been objection? been given an original objection by a prospect. No, I mean, they, they do tend to fall into, they don't have the time, they don't have the money. I mean, it's, it's one of those two. Same 12 to 25 on every business you've ever been in. And once you know what they are, it's always the same or their derivatives thereof. Fair? Right. Oh, absolutely. Okay. absolutely. What about questions? Have you ever had an original question from a prospect after you've had maybe 20 meetings? Well, if I've had 20 meetings, we're good friends. I'm just going to say that. No, no, and, no, no, no. I'm not talking with one prospect. After oh. you have 20 pros uh, meetings with 20 prospects in a, in a new market or a new job, have you ever received an original question from a prospect? Personally, yes, because of my approach. I'm, I'm always having original conversations with the people with my prospects, always. Right. Okay. 
when you observe people using a more traditional approach. Oh, the traditional? Oh, no. Then is it because you set it up that way. That's the whole idea. And what I talk about in the book is this idea of controlling the conversation so it goes the way you want it to go is actually controlling the other human being, which does not feel good to them. And I'm so pleased it's not just me ranting about this. So there are two of us mad people in the corner <laughs> being very lonely and being ignored. Um, <laughs> again, you've got your questioning and you need to really up your game with your questions, people. Stop asking bland, banal questions. Stop asking bant questions. Ask questions that challenge, that provoke, make them think, help them advance their understanding of the problem and what might be possible. Really develop some good answers because the chances of you being asked an original question about your company, your product, your service, your competitive landscape, your competitors, your marketplace, your products, your services is almost non-existent. You can prepare brilliant 10 second answers 30-second answers, three-minute answers, half-hour answers. None of this cannot be prepared for. And then get your listening in. Learn how to listen properly. Listen not just to fill in uh, the answer to, or ask your next question. And for goodness sake, listen to the end. That's where all the golden stuff is. If you're thinking about your next question, you're going to miss it. And the fourth pillar is the contextual awareness. If you do not understand how to read the situation and respond to how, what is being reflected back to you because of how you've turned up and be behaved or misbehaved, you have no place trying to convince somebody of anything because, frankly, you're part of the problem. Absolutely. I agree with everything. I love the way you put the four pillars. I'm going to go back to the first one about the value. Here's why you cannot script the most valuable information that I can give to a prospect is my personal story of why I'm passionate about representing this product. What I've discovered along the way, that fascinated me. People love to hear stories. They do not love to hear facts. Now, I've even said that. I know there are some people who think very logically and that's all they want is facts. Well, if you've identified that that's the person that's in front of you, Great, then give them facts. But everyone else, we're trained to feel comfortable when people tell us stories, not lies, but our own personal experiences and stories or stories of our other clients and prospects. And so that's what actually they want to hear. They'll consider that valuable rather than pushing the benefits and the features. You can say, when they say to you, okay, under these circumstances, I'd be open to buying, you can say, that's wonderful. I have a client who was in the same situation. And this was the situation. This was the problem. This is how they chose to solve it with my product or service. These are their results now. Now, they're not going to hear that. The prospect isn't going to hear that as pushing. They're going to hear it as a story. That's going to get their mind to operating in a particular way because they're going to be able to envision themselves in the story. Now that's going to lead to a different kind of conversation. And most salespeople do not tell stories. Again, 
we've got to stop trying to fight the way our brains are architected. For the last quarter of a million years, barring the last maybe 2,000, our ancestors were stuck on the savannah looking up at the great ostrich in the sky or whatever it is around campfires telling stories. You hear stories of the flood in every continent. There are Aboriginal stories of a flood and the evidence goes back about 21,000 years. Now, this is a, um, a narrative that has been passed down through generations across continents through 250 millennia or whatever, or 20 uh, millennia. That's the power of story. It has a memory. Yes, it does. So tell me this. You've got a blank sheet of paper, and you can design ideal sales manager. Describe that person to me. Describe their qualities, their values, their habits. Okay. Well, the first thing is, They've developed the ability to have empathy, <laughs> that they will sit with a prospective sales professional and want to take the time to get to know them. What is driving that person? What personal challenges might they have that could get in the way of them being successful in their career? How much, yes, how much sales experience do they already have? And to explore if there's anything in this person's history that they could genuinely create a story around to connect to the product or service. Most sales managers don't take the time to do that. And I understand there's all sorts of laws and regulations, but we're not asking for you to violate any of that. You're going to have conversations with people anyway. Get to know your your prospective salespeople like you want them to get to know their prospects and potential clients and customers. The next is education. A sales manager must be adept at educating in different styles. Not everybody learns the same way. So if you're responsible as a leader to developing other leaders on your team, and that's the other thing, a sales manager who develops followers will not be a winning sales manager. They will be a winning babysitter. Mm -hmm. So we want to have sales managers who are trained to educate in various styles. And, and you know, those are out there. Psychologists can show you what the different styles are. Some people like visuals. Some people need stories. Some people prefer facts. So you've got to get to know your team and how they prefer to receive information, each person. And then encouragement. And here's something that made me cry, literally made me cry. Harvard Business Study last year on acknowledgement and encouragement of employees. One third of all respondents said they never encourage the people who work for them. Never encourage. Mm -hmm. How can that be in this day and age? How can that still be? That a manager doesn't see their role as an encourager? I, I don't get it. Come on, Stacey. I mean, we're not running a holiday camp. They're here to work. It's not our job to nanny these people. Talk about Victorian times, Marcus. What are we, you know, like we're back in the workhouses? I don't think so. People looking for handouts and they just don't know how uh, how lucky they are 
why aren't they getting on their bike and finding da la 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 la? Yeah, I mean, th- there's an awful lot of horseshit still floating around because there are idiots still in charge. And the problem is the pandemic didn't kill off the idiots. It killed off <laughs> nice people. I might be careful about that, but I, that was some statement right there. Yeah, well, that's, uh, it just drives me insane that we waste so much time on what, what is, frankly, utterly pointless activities. You know, the idea that a manager could think it's a good idea to have their people compete with one another instead of use that energy and effort to help each other so that the team and the company achieve their outcome and you win in a competitive landscape. Even better, why not just try and collaborate? And one of my favorite moves this week has been to set up a dead lead swap with my competitors. That's fantastic. Yeah, about eight of us are all teaming up because we're not always going to be right. So why not? The customer ends up with someone who's halfway decent and one of us ends up winning. Make the pie bigger. I don't need to compete. First off, that's what associations were always built on, right? Trade associations. You come together, you collaborate. Why not pull your resources to help the people your association is supposed to be helping ultimately? I love it. Because we we seem to have fixated on the need to compete coexist reluctantly or collaborate at arm's length as a way of exploiting other people. Because you, you look at the way pe- the way people treat their channel and their partners and their affiliates, and so often, it's slightly better now, but certainly in the past, they would play fast and loose with commissions. The last few years, if they needed, if the CFO um, needed their valuation to look good, they delay commission payments or they you know they delay payments to suppliers and all of that stuff. No wonder there is no trust. And at the end of the day, it sounds wishy-washy, but trust is something that you cannot get enough of and you cannot give enough of. And this whole piece around selling from your comfort zone is really about vulnerability, humility, and trust giving. It's 100% authenticity because, and I didn't come up with this. I talk about it in the book. I've, I'm, it's out there. People have to know you, they have to like you, and they have to trust you before they will invest with you. That trust level, if you're selling a high, high ticket item, you've got a big bar to get over because as you said, people do not trust the organization's. So going in representing an organization, you've already got a bar that you have to prove you're not that dishonest person, that your company is not dishonest. So you don't come in on a level playing field if you're at a selling a high ticket item. A lower ticket item, even if the person doesn't trust the company, it doesn't take a lot of trust in you to for them to play, you know, if it doesn't cost that much, not a big risk. And if we're playing at the big level, you have to know, you have to know that when you walk in representing the company, even if you think they're the most reputable company ever, the distrust, like Marcus said, of large organizations for a variety of reasons is already there. And so you're not going to overcome that bar. You're not going to jump it with facts and figures. 
You're going to jump it with authenticity, trustworthiness, and personal empathy. And by focusing on that and playing a long game where you're focused on the medium to long-term pipeline, you're not focused on the short-term pipeline, you have time to uh, have multiple touches over time where you show up, you bring value, you represent the company as being a partner instead of this rapacious uh, pocket-dipping drive-by shooting artist, because that's what most sales experiences are. They show up, throw up, quote, hope, sell and run, and then three years later, they do a drive-by shooting for the renewal. That's not relationship building. And no, that's that is not, not like, relationship. Well, think about it. In this kind of economy, who are you going to go to? People who've had your back, who trust you, who you trust, who understand, who've had intimate moments, you've shared confidences, or the person who just cold-called you. Yeah, well, in this environment, we've got social media as well. And if you can show up, sales professionals, if you can show up, as Marcus said early on, as thought leaders, sharing valuable information, if you put together your own newsletter, gathering information from the industry, from the marketplace, that helps them to be able to do their job better that gives them a resource that they can rely on for up-to-date information, you are already setting yourself up ahead of anyone who sells what you sell and isn't doing that. That is if people don't want us constantly calling them, are you ready yet? Are you ready yet? Are you ready yet? What they want is if you're going to be in front of them, give them something of value. And creating a newsletter, inviting them to be on that newsletter. If you're on LinkedIn, inviting them to subscribe to it. And regularly putting out non-salesy information, wisdom, thoughts, ideas, trends. You're going to notice that they're going to start contacting you. They're going to ask you questions. They're going to comment on the newsletter. They'll start the next conversation with you. And you'll never have to do that. Are you ready yet? Are you ready yet? Are you ready yet? You can just leave that behind. Again, add to that, if you think about it, if you're focused on your medium-term pipeline, so that's six to 36 months out, you have time to have multiple touches, multiple conversations, multiple opportunities to show up on their journey when they're having struggling moments because you know how your customers' buying cycles work. If you've been around for any length of time, it's very rarely that it's rare it's going to be different. And if it is, it's different in terms of syntax, not in terms of components. And you need to work out how those different components connect. And you've got time to have uh, build a dozen, 20, 30 relationships across an organization. And as they move, from passive to active looking to deciding, you're really the only show in town if you've done that because everyone else turns up and they speak to one or two people who are probably in their comfort zone, i.e. they're very low down the organization because they don't want to speak to anyone with any serious authority or power. Whereas you've spent six months, 12, 18 months 
working that relationship tree, getting referred, going back, using the information that you found to help people within the organization get better understanding of their broader problem. Why would you not be the only choice? Absolutely. And I'm going to go back to you and asked me earlier about sales managers. I really believe that what's really important for sales managers to explain how long it's likely for a sales, new salesperson to that organization to make a sale and give them the space. And it reminds me, one time in my career, I was representing a film production company. And I did my research before I agreed to come on as their rep. I was actually buying in as a partnership, but my job was to be a rep for the producer and the director. I was the one going out getting the jobs. And I went to them and I said, here's the deal. It's going to take me six months based on the lack of reputation that you have in the industry. The number of those, I like I put my plan together and I said, I will not be generating income for six months, mm-hmm. minimum. I want to be paid during those six months because I'm going to be doing the relationship building. You don't want to do that. We don't have a deal. Now, most salespeople wouldn't even know to do that. I had already had lots of sales jobs. I knew what to do. So I'm saying a sales manager needs to do that. And yes, the film company did hire me. And believe it or not, or you can say I know my stuff, six months, I brought in the first first bids and we got them. Because I had built that relationship up and I knew what they needed, what the director and the producer had to put together as the bid in order to beat out the others. Okay. And um, so tell me this, how many accounts uh, were you targeting um, when you were going for the relationship instead of the volume? Well, first off, I knew why I wanted to represent that company. I loved the director's work that he had already done and had moved me. I had my personal story. So with that, and I also had my experience because I was calling on ad agencies and I had come from an ad agency. So I had a lot of experience of knowing what kinds of jobs he could do well and who were the creative directors who were working on those accounts. So I had done my research. I didn't go talk to everybody. So I don't even remember what the size of the list was. I just know that I knew who to contact. Could you count your list on your fingers and toes? Well, probably somewhere along those lines. Yeah. Right. So again, what I want people to take away from today's conversation is that if you play the long game and you understand who you really need to target, So it's very important that the most senior people who really know what they're talking about and know what they're doing build the list. And that list is made up of your ideal, your five-star prospects. And your job then is to develop those relationships over time because you don't need a lot of volume. What you want is the result. If you think about it, if you need 20 accounts, okay, work on maybe 60, uh, not 2,000. It just doesn't make any sense because you'll just dilute all of your effort. Absolutely. We we cannot spread ourselves too thin if we want to keep building relationship and sharing value. So what I'm I'm going to reiterate in the same experience, those creative directors were constantly churning out commercials. I didn't need that many to keep bringing in business 
They we just and once they did the director had done a great job on one, we were automatically then invited to bid on the others in the future. And what was your win rate on those expansion accounts? Usually around 75%, because if we got the if we got the bid, they wanted us to come in. Every once in a while we might be undercut by another company who was trying to get in there. But his work was so good that generally people would come back after that. You know, they go, okay, I'm going to give someone else a try. They would come back. Okay. So again, what I want people to take away from this is that if you understand your customer and you match solution to the customer's need, then they will keep coming back again and again because people, human beings are very loyal when you're serving their selfish self-interest and they feel like you have their back. If you put their needs first, then they'll get your needs met over time. That's absolutely. And, um, and it was the friendship. Like I knew these folks very well. I knew their lives. I knew their kids. I mean, I didn't know them personally. I knew of their kids. I would remember birthdays, you know, all the things we're told to do, but I didn't do it because it was a check, check, check. I did it because they were friends. Okay, so my next question is this. How much of your time did you spend on dead activity uh, that <laughs> resulted in not moving a deal forward that just cost the company time, money, or resource? Okay, so that question originally that I always ask, so just tell me under what circumstances would you be ready to buy? If someone said to me, I don't really see any opportunity, again, this is where a newsletter comes in very handy. I would say, great, I'm going to add you to my newsletter if that's okay. I send it out with tips and resources. If it's of value to you, I hope it is. And that's it. That is my follow-up. The people who said to me they had the possibility, those were the people that I focused on until they would tell me there was no possibility. I do not do follow-up the way everybody's taught to follow-up. To me, the time and energy spent chasing is time and energy I could put in to building relationship with people who want to build a relationship with me. And as a result, I don't put energy into dead weight. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you can whisper in the ear of the idiot, Stacey, age 23, who thought she knew everything. What choice bit of advice would you have given her that you know she'd have probably have ignored because she thought she was invincible? Oh, my goodness. I think I've given the advice to myself just about every day, which is be genuine and only do the things that you feel in your heart are in alignment with yourself. And I'm going to say this is hard one advice. And I remind myself of it every single day. So I'll probably still be saying it to myself right up until my deathbed. It's a, are you in alignment or are you out of alignment in any area? So get back into it. Good advice. If you think about it, if you're out of alignment, if you think about it as a rubber band, and um, when you're in alignment, everything lines up and the rubber band just basically stretches just to the limit before it needs to stretch. It's complete. It's a circle. But the minute you start getting out of alignment, that rubber band starts to stretch and stretch and stretch. And the longer it goes, 
the more energy it takes to sustain that. And it's wearing and it's tiring and it starts to eat away. It's just not worth it. Stacey, this has been really, really very interesting. How can people get hold of you? The easiest way is my website because it's easy. Stacy S-T-A-C-E-Y, and A-N-N, Hall, H-A-L-L.com, StacyAnnHall.com. And if you click on the book tab, you'll find out about selling from your comfort zone and even be able to read an excerpt for free. And if you click on the courses tab, the very first course is free to everybody. It's called The Eight Steps to a Sale. And this is where I outline this alignment process of moving our prospects to get to know us through the like stage and into the trust stage where we can make offers where they say yes to us. So I thank you for asking, Marcus. I have, I've laughed (laughs) and I've enjoyed your questions. I think you have the most wonderful interview style. You've kept me on my toes all the way through. So thank you. Thank you so much, Stacey. So this is Marcus Cowkey signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Get in touch with Stacey. Get in touch with me. Ask us questions. We'll get back to you. And again, both of us are really fervent about wanting the next generation of salespeople not to perpetrate the same disgusting, horrible, vile behaviors that have created the conditions where salespeople have earned the reputation of being slimy and untrustworthy. Nobody should ever be ashamed to follow you in the sale. So if you want to get in touch with me to talk about coaching or training or with Stacey, then my email is marcus at last-last.com. Direct message me on LinkedIn, and there's going to be a link to get in touch about coaching somewhere in the blurb. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.